0: What does growing up with lions and zebras and leopards in your backyard teach us about protecting the planet? I'm Benji Jones, and I write for Vox about the environment, conservation, and biodiversity. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. In a previous episode of Vox Conversations, I learned about a bird in Africa called the honey guide. If you know how to talk to it, this pretty normal-looking bird will guide you to beehives full of honey. This is a real thing. Indigenous people have been following these birds to honeypots for a long time. People like my guest today, Ole Riyamit, a member of the Maasai indigenous group in Kenya. Kimirin has followed birds to honey several times before. But that's actually just one example of the intimate relationship that he and many indigenous people have with nature. And it's a relationship that, in much of the world, is breaking down, is actually broken down. Unlike my guest, many of us aren't so directly dependent on the land or so aware of how it's changing. And it really is changing. The planet is warming up and more and more, we're replacing ecosystems with farms and buildings. Environmental advocates know we need to reverse some of those changes, and increasingly, they're turning towards indigenous people for guidance. The very people whom the environmental movement has in the past ignored or even subjugated in the name of conservation. Kimran is among the leaders who are trying to integrate indigenous knowledge into the fight to save nature. We talk about growing up Maasai and how the lessons he's learned about the planet might just give us a better shot at keeping it intact. It's home to all kinds of iconic animals, from lions to water buffaloes to leopards, and many herds of cattle, the center of Maasai culture and identity. Kimaran describes himself as a sort of bridge between worlds. On one side, the Maasai community, and on the other, the West.
1: I grew up as a cattle boy. I grew up as a herd's boy. I was one of the very few privileged to go to school outside of the community. And it was boarding school because school is 100 kilometers away from the village. And every time I am on school break from day two to the second last day of the break, I was hiding cattle. <laughs> and... I grew up, you know, in the middle of cattle, learning the ways of herding, learning what pasture is healthy, which one is poisonous, which one helps a cow produce more milk, which one is medicinal for what condition. And so one of my identity is being connected to the landscape, the pastoral landscape, which are the savannah pasture land of East Africa, and in this case, Southern Kenya. And so uh, I feel very much connected with the landscape. I learn the different uh, trees and species, which roots are good for food, which fruit is healthy, what time they flower, what time they fruit. So basically,
0: you were in school and this was, you went to a boarding school from what age?
1: I was about eight years when I went to class one. There was no kindergarten. You just went straight to class one.
0: Okay. So you're saying that in your free time, you would come back home and have the responsibility of cattle herding with other members of your family?
1: Oh, yes, indeed, because initially the community thought that people who go to school idlers are just sitting between uh, four walls while the others are busy, you know, herding livestock and scouting the landscape. And so you are supposed to come and give a break to those who have been hiding who never went to school. Right. The primary livelihood activity was livestock and remains livestock rearing for most of Maasai pastoral communities.
0: Right, right. And you mentioned that it was kind of a privilege to go to school outside of the community, right? Can you just maybe talk a bit more about
1: that? Well, actually, sometimes they joke that the people who went to school are the poor hadders and the best hudders were left behind because that was a superior and the most important livelihood activity. There was a prestige in being a good harder than being a good student because the values of uh, formal education were still distant from my community. So the privilege was to remain in the culture and grow to be a warrior and master the indigenous ways of knowing and learning.
0: And I'm excited to talk a bit more about that, to understand what it's actually like to to be in this landscape and, and herd cattle. My naive understanding is that there are these very iconic and famous animals like giraffes and elephants and lions living there. Do you have a lot of experiences seeing these kinds of iconic animals? And do
1: you have a relationship with them? I'm just curious. Did I have or do I still have? Both, both. Well, I'm saying I still do have. I did have and continue to have despite, you know, now under a little more constraint and pressure. Yes, I grew up in this savanna landscape with the large mammals like elephants and buffaloes and lions and name them, cheetahs, leopards. I've had an encounter, you know, with uh, most of our family members. Uh, I have a brother, for example, who has lost an eye. Because he had an encounter with a leopard, which came to steal the goats at night. Oh, my God. And he had to safeguard. I was chased by an elephant. I walked right into it in the forest, and I just saw the whole bush moving. And it's like the bush following me, you know, an elephant behind you. Oh, my God. You turn left and right, it's equal in size, so you can't avoid it. Anyway. But I'm here to tell the story. So yes, I have a brother whose knee is uh, dislocated because a heena came into the sheep pen again and uh, tried to steal a goat. And as a young boy, he struggled to, you know, one of the things you are trained in the landscape is to be tough, to withstand pain, to protect community and livestock at whatever cost. Hmm. And the human-wildlife conflict is the order of the day. It has increased now because of the pressure of urbanization and so on. And then the other interesting thing is that you need to ask the question, why, why are these landscape iconic? Why is wildlife in this landscape and not any other communities? We have 42 ethnic groups in the country, but the highest density of this wildlife is found in these pastoral areas, particularly Masai and their cousins, the Samburus in the north. And why is it so? First is that it's difficult to separate the culture from the nature. Hmm. Nature is reflected in the culture through rites of passage. Every single rite of passage, like naming ceremony, circumcision ceremony, graduation from junior to senior warriors, has an aspect of plan to solemnize the rite of passage. And in nature, there are totems that reflect clans. So you have clan of the baboon, clans of the elephant, clan of the rhino. And so how would you kill your clansmate? How would you kill your clansmate, the wildlife? And so number one is that the culture is reflected in the wild, in the nature, and nature is also reflected in the culture. And then there are taboos and and rules about relationship and harvesting and engaging and interacting with nature that ensure sustainable uh, use of whatever we get from nature. And what are some of those taboos? So one of them is that if you have a lactating cow, a cow that gives milk, it's taboo to eat game meat. And therefore, by tabooing eating game meat, it becomes one of the reasons why wildlife is abundant because we don't eat game meat. You cannot pride yourself in eating game meat. Uh, The girls will run away from you. You're not a respected uh, warrior, you know?
0: And that's because you have a cow that is already producing milk that you can use as food?
1: Yes, exactly. You have a goat. So why go kill an antelope when you have a goat in the shed, you know, that you have domesticated?
0: Are those rules pretty effective?
1: Suddenly, they are very, very effective. Uh, and the abundance of wildlife speaks to the efficiency of, of these rules, you know. Why are they there? They are not fenced in. Yeah. Animals in our landscape are not in zoos. They interact and graze with wildlife like, you know, cows are in the wild, you know. And the same goes with harvesting natural products of herbal trees and medicinal plants. If the active ingredient of a herbal medicine is in the roots... You are not allowed to harvest a tap root, a root that goes right down. You get a lateral root and you cannot keep going around one plant until it dies. You know, you, you move to the next and get one root. Hmm. If the active ingredient is in the back of the tree, you don't create a ring on the back of the tree because you are suffocating the tree. You create a slit, a vertical slit, and you don't leave it naked. You cover it with soil. Anyway, so there are rules And how do
0: you learn these rules? Is that something that's passed down from one generation to the next or something?
1: Yeah. Suddenly, the landscape itself is a library of knowledge. As a young boy, as a young girl, helping the mother fetch water, walking around, taking care of the sick, you are told, this plant is for this. This plant is poisonous. This is the name of this plant. Uh, When this plant flowers, the rains are around the corner. So the indigenous weather forecasting associated to the behavior of plants and animals is land. You are in school every day, every moment. And then in every evening, the elderly ladies, the grandmothers have bedtime stories with the young ones, you know, the below 14. They talk about society and lessons about their culture. Mm. In the evening, the elders speak with the older boys in the cow pen. So in the neighborhood, a latia, which is a pulling together of huge villages with maybe one homestead having 30 families, mm-hmm. they pull knowledge together. They pull labor together. They pull knowledge of the landscape together. And they share in what is called lengoti, the sitting of the elders or they share in what is called enketagata, the sitting of women, the gathering of women to exchange news and knowledge. So learning is an everyday affair. It is not systematized into terms like we know in the formal way, but we are conditioned and brought up to absorb every experience and inquire the meaning. There are so many things that I want to get into. One of the most striking things
0: you said is that Your community is a place where you have people sharing habitat with all these different animals. You have the occasional hunting. But despite that, wildlife is actually pretty healthy in these communities relative to other parts of Kenya. And so it's just a really great example of how you can actually have people living in nature when it's not necessarily a problem for wildlife. You can live in harmony with nature.
1: Right. Relatively compared to other community groups or cultural groups. This indigenous community, at least my community, has ingrained value systems, cultural practices, customary laws and regulation that ensures uh, harmony with nature. Right, And in fact, they ascribe also life and almost spirit to nature. When a young man moves away from his father, having married and wants to start his home, they light a fire of a new home. And this fire of a new home is lit from a particular tree, two particular trees, which you use friction to produce a fire. You don't borrow a fire from the next household because you borrow the spirit of that household. So you light a fire, symbolizing a new fresh spirit starting in this new home. And so again, nature plays in this. And then you, as they harvest this particular tree, part of the tree to make the fire, they say, I'm cutting this branch not because I want to destroy you, but because I want to start a new home. I'll take care of you as you take care of me, you know? Mm. So this sort of uh, ascribing uh, spirit and life to nature.
0: Right, right. And, And I have to ask, you mentioned that you have a brother who was injured by a leopard. I mean, how do you how do you react to that? Like, is there frustration when certain kinds of wildlife are actually harming your
1: family? Yeah, when a lion becomes problematic and develops a test for cattle meat instead of buffalo and <laughs> eland right. and all these other wild animals, suddenly the community can organize to kill that lion because it's become problematic. But it's not a reason to kill all the lions, you know? Yeah. Or even in self defense, uh, when you're attacked, you have your spear, traditional spear, you try to protect yourself. You don't surrender yourself as a snack to the lion when it's ready to maul you. But then now, when the, the nation states came in and they established English law and prohibited certain things, they came up with a mockery of a life compensation. Hmm. When a wild animal kills a human being, Until 2010, when you got a new constitution, life compensation was $30, 30, 30,000 Kenya shillings from independence to 2010. Wow. And this is a challenge because communities that have conserved and preserved, and they are killed by elephants or lions, and you make a mockery of their life in the name of tourism dollars. Then you start introducing another dynamic of relationship between indigenous communities and wildlife, where you almost condition them to see them as a burden.
0: Just so I understand, so you're saying that until recently, if someone from your community was killed by an animal, you would be compensated for about 30 U.S. dollars only from the government.
1: Yes, for which you have to break your neck to prove that you didn't predispose yourself to the lion. You didn't surrender yourself as a a four o'clock snack for the lion. (laughs) And so you're
0: saying that essentially, like, you have this indigenous community that's doing a lot of the conservation work, is living in these environments, and tourists are benefiting from it. But if you're killed in the process by an animal, your life isn't worth very much.
1: Yeah, not, certainly not worth any much. Uh, $30,000 now with a new constitution is 5 million Kenya shillings, which is like $5,000. So the challenge is not just the value, the price tag for life, but how you are handled in the process. You know, you begin as a suspect so that you prove that you are a victim.
0: And I'm just curious, you've had a close relationship with nature for your entire life. Have you had any experiences with wildlife that that stand out in terms of either encounters that are frightening or just experiences that really showed how important wildlife or plants are for your day-to-day existence?
1: Yeah, I mean, first is that uh, as you grow up, nature communicates. We'll soon learn that the honey guides guide us to where honey is. And we harvest the honey and there goes. And and these are? They are birds and and they're called honey guides because they actually make a sound to tell you, I've seen honey. And if you know how to respond and follow them, they will tell you until the tree or the hole where the honey is and they stop. And there you are. Wow. Yeah. Have have you followed a honey guide? Oh, severally. Of course, severally. Wow. Uh, You know, as a pastoralist, you only eat twice a day. In the morning, when you have maybe your, at least traditionally now, the the plate is getting a little diversified. But uh, a few years back, you have your three mugs of milk in the morning, and then you go the whole day until evening. So, what is happening during the day is that you are enjoying the wild fruits, you are following the honey guides, you are discovering the root tubers, wild, that boost your energy, that give you a source of water, or hydrate you, and some birds also tell you, like the ox pecker, can tell you when the buffalo is around the corner. And the buffalo is one of the most vicious, I think, wild animals, which actually can ambush a human being. But if you know the sound of the birds and if you know the meaning of their sound, you can avoid a buffalo. And, and, And so on and so forth. And yes, I've had an ugly encounter once. I was in the village in the hiding pen alone one night. The leopard took a goat. At night, at dawn, around 6 a.m., and being the man in the home, I had to follow it. You have to retrieve the carcass and share with the leopard. You don't just sit and let it go. And uh, on my way, I stumbled into an elephant, and I rudely woke him up. It trumpeted and almost, you know, deafened my ears. I couldn't know which direction it was coming from.
0: Oh, my God. So,
1: so anyway, several encounters. Yeah. Uh, this is a reality of the wilderness uh, and the pastoral experiences. Totally. The example about the
0: honey guide is just amazing, and I would just love to hear a bit more about it. So, you follow this bird.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bird will look for humans in the landscape close to where the honey is, and they comes and makes some music or chaps around. Over the years, indigenous communities have learned the language, and you respond. When you respond, it goes to the—it moves to the next tree. You move on. And what's in it for the birds? That's a good question. When you try to harvest the bees, the bees try to finish their honey, and they overfeed. And they become engorged, and they can't fly. And the honey guide feeds on them, feeds on the bees. Huh. And now the bees can't sting. They are overfed. The bees feel like they have stored for themselves this honey, and you're coming to deprive them. And so they take as much as they can, and they engorge up to three times their normal size. Wow. They can't fly away, and they become a feast for their honey guide.
0: So it's like this incredible win-win. You benefit by getting honey, and the birds benefit by... I guess also getting food.
1: Yes, it's a win for, for you who is being guided to honey you couldn't discover because it could be in a hole up a high tree, it could be in a, a hidden tree inside the thicket. You couldn't see it. Okay, you can stumble on it accidentally, but this is a sure bet.
0: We're going to take a quick break but when we come back, I'll ask Kimmerin about the lessons from his indigenous community that he's bringing to the global fight against extinction. It's hard to have this conversation about living so closely with nature and wildlife without acknowledging this moment that we're in right now. We're fighting both an extinction crisis and a climate crisis at the same time. I mean, we're seeing unprecedented rates of wildlife extinction, for example. And so, as I understand it, you're, you're bringing indigenous knowledge into this fight in a central way. What does that actually look like? What is the indigenous knowledge that you're hoping to bring into this battle against this kind of rampant wildlife extinction?
1: So I am privileged to belong to two worlds. I am privileged to belong to the world of the indigenous, where I experience the wilderness. So I am privileged in that respect. And I am also privileged to have gone to Western ways of knowing and formal education to learn the way the world is ruled and the way the world is governed and the way the market acts in putting pressure in this landscape in the name of profit. And so One of the lessons from the indigenous community is that you take from nature what you basically need. So you don't overstock your fridge just to throw it to the dustbin because you're accumulating blindly. Yeah. So like for the pastoral community, you milk the cow in the morning, you enjoy the milk, and do the same in the evening when the cows come back from grazing. So this sustainable utilization of consciously choosing to pick what you need for the moment as opposed to blindly accumulating for an insatiable appetite of accumulation. So this is one of the lessons. also that nature takes care of us when we take care of it. I mean, I gave you the example of the honey guide one of the things we have been struggling with in our county is we have a forest, the largest water tower forest in this country called the Mao Forest Complex. This complex is a source of 12 rivers and they flow different 360 direction. Hmm. And these rivers feed into the lakes of the Rifti Valley. This is the water's, that feed into lakes Nakuru, lakes, you know, Victoria, lakes Natron, and all these other lakes in the Rifti Valley in East Africa. And these are the waters that feed Lake Victoria, which is the source of the Nile that feeds Egypt. So this forest has 22 blocks, called blocks in the name of administrative boundaries. And one of the blocks is in my county called the Maasai Mao Forest. And our community from before the colonial time. Our elders set it aside because it's a lifeline. It's a lifeline of livestock, of the people, of wildlife. And so by taking care of nature, the rest thrives. And this forest has been deforested, it has been encroached, it has been excised through political uh, manipulation. And the rivers almost came to a standstill because we are not taking care of nature. It won't take care of us. Uh, We paid a price.
0: Yeah. I'm really interested in in these two different worlds that you mentioned. On, on the one hand, you have your upbringing in Kenya, living on the land, and then you also mentioned this other world, which is kind of the Western approach to conservation, which is rooted in in many of these big, large conservation organizations. And so I'm just curious, when did you first realize that you wanted to be a part of this global conservation movement? When did you start thinking about forming this bridge?
1: So I just shared my upbringing of a very thriving landscape, a very vibrant, very rich biodiversity, very refreshing landscape. And as I grew up and continued in the school all the way to college and always connected to this landscape, I started seeing like when I was going to school as a young boy, I'll cross these fresh springs every morning and go to school dripping wet. Water was always abundant. And I would always be late in school because I wait for the river to subside so that I can cross, there were no bridges. Now, as I start appreciating what is happening in, you know, the pressures on the landscape, I saw certain, some birds are no more. For example, the ox pecker, which always was on life. So because of the commensal relationship between the bird And the cow, because the ticks are on the cow. And the bird picks the ticks. And the cow enjoys because it's it's getting relieved. But over time, I realized I don't see these birds anymore. The last time I heard of a honey guide, I don't know. It became distant and far apart the encounters of a honey guide. So you're seeing these changes happening? Real, real in my life, right before me. And I I mean, I started questioning, what is happening, you know? This river that used to be permanent reduces to a string where a toddler can cross, barely wetting its feet, you know? So I saw the landscape almost raped; that is almost crying aloud, you know, species that I'm familiar with, disappearing or became so rare. And so I started questioning what is happening. Having uh, experienced and enjoyed this rich landscape, became aware of climate change. I mean, even the communities themselves started noticing and saying that dry months have stolen the water from the wet months and they are not giving it back. So the indigenous knowledge systems of weather forecasting became disrupted. The months that we expect the rains the rains never came. And those we don't expect, the rains come. Wow! And our livelihoods are ordered around seasons.
0: It's, it's interesting because I think a lot of us feel really disconnected from the changes that we're seeing in the world. We all have air conditioners when the weather is hot or can run to the grocery store when we're out of food. Whereas it seems like in your community, you're just much more directly impacted by these changes.
1: Yes, indeed, uh, one of the messages we take to the world in these climate discourses is that climate change is not a theoretical debate for us. Mm. We are in the front line of the negative impacts of climate change. We see the waters disappear. So one of the characteristics of the savannas and the rangelands of pastoral communities is that water is scarce from, you know, a long time. But now, if you add climate change to that scarcity of water, you have a serious situation. We are just coming from a, a drought in Kenya where livestock went the furthest they have ever gone. You know, uh, If you can check the distance between Narok and Mali, it's about 350 to 400 kilometers. And livestock had to go because there was showers there. And they were dying on this end because we went for three or four months without rains. Uh-huh. And livestock had collapsed. Many people had collapsed and died. And to build a herd is an intergenerational affair. And so for us, one of the messages is that climate change is so real. We are people of the land and the skies. We look up to see when the clouds gather. When they gather, we have water. When they don't, we move to where they have gathered and poured water. What was it like to learn about wildlife issues or
0: climate change or other kinds of environmental problems from Western textbooks and professors when this is something that you grew up just experiencing? I mean, that must have been strange. Well,
1: was strange. It felt distant and alien, you know, because uh, one of the things that I struggled with post-grad was the theory around, okay, every study must begin with a theoretical framework. You must think from where somebody started thinking and and continue from there. But I'm used to observing. I'm used to experiencing things firsthand. Mm. Indigenous knowledge is experiential knowledge, is observed knowledge, is felt, touched, observed experience, you know? And it's intergenerationally questioned, uh, reviewed, and updated over generations. But here we are, you have first to be indoctrinated with a theory so that you think from that theory, you know. And and this was one of the challenges that I experienced. So, because it was this question about uh, the way conservation is enacted. So, of course, first came fortress uh, where we were pushed out of the land. Fortress conservation, because the assumption then was people hate uh, wildlife. People are distracted to wildlife. So we were removed. So in the Maasai-speaking counties, they are some of the largest protected areas in the country, both in the north and in the south. But then, of course, research has demonstrated that 60% of the time, 70% of this wildlife is in community areas. For a number of reasons, you know?
0: So you're saying that when you were in grad school learning about all of these different conservation issues, one of the takeaways was that a lot of these studies approached everything from a kind of theoretical standpoint, whereas you approached it from observation. Exactly. And then you're also saying that when you were in school, the kind of primary conservation approach was to exclude people
1: from the land. Is that is that right? Exactly. But as we struggled with a fortress conservation a new model emerged that is coming in now called community-based conservation. And they say community-based conservation is a win-win solution. But when you look at it, first, what is a product? What is being sold? And who has power to determine who gets what? So what is community-based conservation? So this idea that we can co-manage resources, we can co-benefit, We can call on and we can even think about integrating indigenous knowledge. But when you look beneath the surface, first is what is being sold? What is being sold is what the indigenous communities have conserved for eons. It's a landscape. It's it's a wildlife. It's a culture which has become the backdrop within which wildlife must be watched and experienced. So basically an alternative to this
0: approach to conservation that excludes people is something called community-based conservation which actually involves people in the conservation itself but you're saying that that's actually been happening for eons already by indigenous folks and and that's not new
1: yeah I mean I think earlier on what I've described was community conservation wildlife is there because community has conserved and they' are living with it right but then now, Uh, When you introduce uh, the so-called investor who will build a lodge and has uh, instruments of power, privileged knowledge of the market, privileged connection to state organs, uh, they end up being the conservator, not the community. And and so while community-based conservation is suddenly a big movement, I would say, towards appreciating what communities have done and continue to do, a lot still needs to be done to create uh, mutually respectful partnerships, to create effective control on ownership of land by these indigenous communities, so that community-based conservation is not an excuse to negotiate for more land into conservation with in optimal benefits for communities. Because once you introduce community-based conservation in a landscape that has livestock, pastoralism becomes constrained and regulated. While before they live together, pastoralism was not regulated, now you regulate. You say you have core conservation area, no goes on for livestock. You have a core, a shed and so on and so forth. So while it is one step towards appreciating the space and the price communities pay, it is certainly not yet optimal.
0: I want to get into some of the challenges that conservation faces and and some of these critiques, but just to zoom out again. When you were in grad school, was it pretty clear that indigenous voices were not part of the conversations around protecting nature?
1: Yes, indeed. Because one, indigenous knowledge was perceived as inferior knowledge. Mm. It was perceived as non-rigorous knowledge because it's non-scientific. Because it's not documented, you cannot rely on it. Never mind that the books are written by interviewing and researching on the field and getting knowledge from these communities and so on. And when these books are written, this knowledge is privatized as others' knowledge. And so one of the challenges is that indigenous knowledge has always been pushed to the periphery. It's archaic knowledge. And in fact, one interesting scenario that speaks to where they place indigenous knowledge is that the institution in charge of indigenous knowledge is the national museums. And sometimes I'm tempted to think it's because this is knowledge that should be preserved in the archives. It's not active knowledge. It's not questioned, uh, regenerated, reviewed, you know.
0: And I mean, when it's in a museum, you think about it as something to be looked at, right? To be gazed at,
1: to be frozen in time and space. Yeah, to be gazed at, exactly. And the second, I think, challenge was that in customary institutions of governance are also sidelined which actually are the ones that regulated conservation. I just did describe the taboos around harvesting natural products in the Maasai context. When you light a fire to smoke the bees to harvest the honey, you must put off the fire so that you control the wildfires, and so on. Right. When you need trees for fencing, you cut a branch, not the trunk. But the institutions of governance, the customary institutions that regulate and enforce these values and systems are disregarded the state bureaucracy is the legitimate institution to do conservation and so while this is slowly you know changing the narrative is changing but effective voice and control is still with the state the market actors
0: We're gonna take one last short break, but when we're back, big, powerful nations are now discussing efforts to protect the planet. So what role do hyper-local indigenous communities play in these grand global plans?
2: Support for the Great area comes from Mint Mobile, When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger, or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: So I want to talk about where things stand today. When you look at some of these major efforts to conserve nature, and I'm thinking about the Paris Agreement or this new effort to protect at least 30% of all land and water by 2030 what role does indigenous
1: knowledge or
0: indigenous communities play in these kinds of
1: grand plans? So when you look at the global system around environment and climate, when you look at the Convention on Biological Diversity, when you look at the Sustainable Development Goals, when you look at the Paris Climate Convention and the Paris Agreement, indigenous people, and I've been lucky and privileged to be part of this movement, have managed to, put placeholders in these decisions. So we, for example, have recognition of indigenous knowledge as part of the knowledge that should inform climate change adaptation and mitigation. Okay. We have a community-based monitoring information system as part of the repertoire of monitoring strategies that should inform national forest monitoring and biodiversity monitoring. All these things around indigenous knowledge is grounded on collective land tenure.
0: And just to clarify, by placeholder, you mean there's this provision within actual documents describing how these things are going to work, right?
1: Exactly. They are placeholders because they are just text that speak to these issues. Got it. They mean nothing if they are not cascaded down and translated to action. They are just good text, good language, you know? And so... Community-based monitoring information system is recognized. Collective land tenure ownership for indigenous communities, which is a foundation of sustainable use for this landscape, is also recognized. The issue of human rights safeguarding the interests of indigenous communities, including mentioning the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Human rights is in the Paris Agreement because we are saying the human face must be in the center of all actions around environmental, sustainable use, conservation, climate change. You know, The issue of access to benefits, equitable access to benefits, is mentioned. But to cut the long story short, this is, I think, a step in the right direction. This is very welcome indeed. But where the rubber meets the road is how is conservation enacted on the ground? How are climate change projects designed? Where is the indigenous people' voice and knowledge in the design, implementation, and monitoring of this project? Where is the climate finance going? So you're saying
0: that at the highest level of global governance and all these international treaties, there's mention of indigenous rights and respect for indigenous people, but that recognition doesn't seem to translate to actual support for indigenous groups on the ground. In other words, like, just including indigenous people in writing isn't enough.
1: Exactly. And, and sometimes I, I have personally called this death by recognition. You know, like, okay, you've made a lot of noise, and we want you to quieten up. Okay, there you are. You have it on the text, you know? <laughs> but the reality of the matter is indigenous people are not saying write about us in paper. They are saying address our, our human rights situation give knowledge or indigenous knowledge space in our daily livelihood, in the development planning and action. They are saying, allow us to sit in the decision-making table so that we bring our knowledges to this table. They are saying, put resources in our hands because we are the wearer of the shoe. We understand why it hurts and we can direct these resources to strategic actions. And on the topic of resources
0: here, I know there is a lot of money flowing into climate initiatives and biodiversity efforts as well. Is that money making its way into indigenous communities, or is that kind of one of the big problems that you're trying to address now?
1: So as I said, the global governance documents and, and, and to some extent, some national level documents, like even the Kenyan constitution, we have a law on traditional knowledge and cultural expression in Kenya and so on so we are seeing also a trickling down of these principles to national spaces in policy and documents again one of the challenge and clarion call for indigenous people is access to resources when you look at the landscape of climate financing environmental conservation financing the resources that come to indigenous people it's a very layered process And each layer takes a chunk of that resources and very little arrives to indigenous communities' hands. Mm. And when you look at, for example, programs like RED, and, and most climate change programs targeted at indigenous people, they always target the software, not their livelihoods. So most of the resources go to awareness. It has its part, but as I said, Climate change for indigenous people is a life and death issue. It's a livelihood issue.
0: Right. And just to clarify, RED is a, an acronym for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, right?
1: Yes, exactly. So basically, it's a program that pays for keeping standing forests standing, yeah, so that you sequester carbon. And so most of the money is don't reach The little that reaches the community is mostly around awareness uh, which goes to big hotels and very little reaches indigenous communities. And also, most of these funds are called small grants. Small grants. Why? There is this notion that indigenous people have no capacity to manage big grants and they never grow to manage, at least so far. And how would they manage big grants if they don't flex their muscles to manage like everybody else? So, yes, there were a huge announcement in, say, Glasgow on forests. $19 billion pledged to forest landscape. It's a very welcome announcement and declaration. That's a lot of money, yeah. Quite a bit of money. Of course, it's not the first time declarations are being made. It was made in New York 2014, the forest declaration to halt emission from forests by 2030. We saw very little uh, in terms of the ground. This one the figures are there. One, we wait to see the architecture through which these funds are dispersed and channeled to communities. Whether indigenous people will be in the decision-making architecture from the highest level to the community. Also, most of these funds are targeted at specific landscapes. They are targeted at the Amazon, they are targeted at the Congo, Basin, and somewhere in Indonesia. But while welcome, these are not the only landscape that are sequestering carbon. What happens, for example, with the savanna woodlands? Kenya is 80 percent arid and semi-arid lands. This high canopy forest in the country is only 5 percent. Actually, where the most carbon is sequestered is in the savanna woodlands. It is skewed towards a specific landscape, and we are here to see it reaching directly to indigenous people.
0: Yeah, and just to clarify, so in 2014, there was a, a big pledge made by dozens of nations called the New York Declaration of Forests to end deforestation by 2030. And in the recent climate conference in Glasgow, Scotland, there was a similar pledge to end deforestation made by over 100 nations. And you're mentioning that basically in 2014, not a lot of money that was going into these commitments actually trickled down into Indigenous communities. Exactly. Exactly. And not only that, but a lot of the money went into the Amazon, which everybody knows about. It's the biggest rainforest in the world, but there are lots of other forests as well, such as those that are in in your community in Kenya. Right. Okay, so another question for you, which is a very big one. You mentioned the importance of having indigenous people from communities around the world represented in these high-stake discussions about how to conserve nature. So my question to you is, if you had let's say like unlimited resources,
1: what would that look like for your community? What would you do with that money? So first is the question of adaptation to climate change. Access to water, for example, for pastoral community is a big issue because availability of water affects utilization of pasture. So even if pasture was available and water is not, then suddenly this can't happen. I mean, you can't access a pasture. So I would strengthen the community aspects of access to water. When also you look at the issue of drought and wastage of these herds, we need, as communities are now struggling with how to build these hards. And one of the areas through which this is possible is by securing land tenure. In Kenya, we have a new law on land. From the 2010 constitution, we have a category called community land. And this must be registered within a certain window. This are a technical process that requires cartographers, that requires maps, that requires reorganization of leadership. All these require resources and are related to how they adapt to climate change, how sustainable utilization of the landscape is enacted. So I would support the community to secure their land rights, collective ownership, because it is in it that this indigenous knowledge is enacted and generated and applied. One of the things is also that we have learned that the state only understands the language of the paper. Spoken and oral is not the way the state communicates. So maybe we have talked too much about our indigenous knowledge without documenting it to be able to share and communicate. And so we would document these indigenous knowledge systems and practices that are relevant to conservation, that are relevant to sustainable use, that are relevant to climate change, resilience, so that then, one, we can engage with those who want to engage and uh, don't understand and want to appreciate We can also have it available for future indigenous people, generations who are now in the formal schooling. The elders who are oldest of this knowledge are growing old. And we need to tap this knowledge and document it because it is held in the collective memory of the society, of the community.
0: So it sounds like there is a direct connection here between financial resources, literally money, and being able to secure the land rights for an indigenous group, which as we know is incredibly important for conservation. And then you could also use resources to document all of this different indigenous knowledge that you've laid out here on paper to use it for future conservation efforts. Precisely, yes. So I would love to hear about your vision for the future. I know that's a very broad question, but given that you come from this community with this incredible relationship with nature that's been lost in so many other places in the world, what do you want the world to look like in the future? Like, what would it actually mean for this bridge that you've described to be fully formed?
1: Well, I I recognize the limitation that we cannot relieve the landscape and the ecosystem within which I was brought up. I recognize the constraints of a crowded planet and uh, a planet that needs to feed its growing population. But... I also think that we can slow down this unsustainable utilization. We can uh, develop integrated visions of how to relate with nature. The world will be a better place if multiple knowledge systems speak to each other, if they inform each other, so that the visions, the cosmovisions visions of how we see the world, how we see our tomorrow, becomes an integrated vision of humanity as they experience nature and they experience modernity and development. So that I think we need space of mutual respect, of hearing out each other without prejudice, of not privileging other knowledge system over others, of recognizing that some people have paid a price, you know, like when tourists come to our landscape, what do they come to see? Do they recognize the resilience and the sacrifices and the value system that the indigenous communities conserving the landscapes are put in? Because sometimes you feel like people see indigenous communities as representing where they have left, you know, in this spectrum of development where we are going to an end, we don't know where it is, to some progressive end, it becomes a measure of how far we have gone. And actually, I would say, in the context of the current global crisis of biodiversity loss and climate change, indigenous people represent the future we want in terms of sustainable basic livelihoods, in terms of low carbon footprint livelihoods.
0: So you've described how nature is very practically valuable, helping to literally sustain your life. I'd love for you to just leave us with the ways in which nature is is valuable for things beyond just the utility of it. And I mean things like the spirituality of nature, the wonder of nature. As human beings, what are we missing out on by not having nature more integrated into our lives? Well,
1: for me and for the Maasai community, nature... Nature is everything. We have sacred groups where the community worships, not necessarily worship the plant, but express spirituality in the rich depth of nature in making us who we are. I would said earlier that my identity as a Maasai, when I see a particular tree, I see a rite of passage, I see... I see identity, and in this landscape one of the reasons why actually they are conserved is because of this spiritual value, that forests are not just about carbon, they are not just about individual certificate properties to be traded in the market. Nature heals us, nature refreshes us, nature connects us back to ourselves. When we listen to the sounds of nature like the crickets as I hear now, the birds chirping and all these noises of nature, it transports me really, really deep and, and far away from these concrete blocks of television and noises. And they have their place, but I find myself there.
0: I've got to say, I would really love to come visit you sometime and get to experience your community and the, and the nature that you grew up with. It just sounds pretty incredible. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: You're most welcome, and thank you for listening to me and connecting me to your audience. Thank you, Benji, and all the best.
0: Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mounsey mixed and mastered this piece. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you've got ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.